Hi, this is Ellie Fishman, and welcome to our latest set of uh, vodcasts or podcasts. And this will be on hematuria. And I put this talk together as more of hematuria from an ER setting. And that's where I originally gave this talk. And the thing about it is we're going to spend very little time on tumors. And of course, tumors are a major part of hematuria. The most common presentation clinically of a renal cell carcinoma will be hematuria. But we're going to touch on tumors just in passing, but we're going to think about hematuria in general. So hematuria, American Urologic Association, AUA. Hematuria is defined as the presence of red blood cells in the urine. When it's visible to the patient, it's termed gross hematuria, and is usually alarming to the patient. Microscopic hematuria is that detected by the dipstick method or microscopic exam of the urinary segment. Now, macroscopic hematuria is a common ER condition. The problem with macroscopic hematuria is that it's highly associated with malignancies. 30% of patients presenting with painless hematuria are found to have a malignancy. Now, the one thing this article also makes the point is when we see a renal cell cancer, particularly it's, unless it's something that's actively bleeding, those patients can be treated as outpatients. Now, remember, Two-thirds of renal cancers are picked up incidentally, so it's not going to be surprising that we pick them up in the ER setting. Same article by Hicks. In men over 60, the positive predictive value of macroscopic hematuria for malignancy is 22%, and for women of the same age, is only 8.3%. In terms of a need for follow-up, a single episode of hematuria, macroscopic, is equally important as recurrent episodes. So when you look at macroscopic hematuria, I'm always worried about tumor. There's no doubt we design our protocols, multi-phase acquisition to look for renal tumors, whether it's a TCC or a renal cell, whether it's of the kidney, the ureter, or the bladder, or whether it's of other organs, such as the prostate, for example. But there are other reasons, urinary calculi, urinary tract infections, trauma, BPH, cystitis, endometriosis, nephro nephrological diseases like IgA, nephropathy, post-procedural complications like bleeding, patients with bleeding disorders or anticoagulant therapy, and finally, AV malformations or angiomyolipoma. So it's a big differential. It's our job to figure out what the heck is going on and manage the patient correctly. Now, the ACR appropriateness criteria, when you look at hematuria, CT gets a nine without and with contrast, okay, bingo, gets a nine. You can't do better than a nine. In this article by Abjulo and Jim Thrall, looking at uh, the role of CT in the ER setting, the most common diagnosis actually was renal colic. 20% of the patients with abdominal symptoms in the ER had renal colic. Uh, small bowel obstruction was the second most and this talks about the management of patients and how CT impacted management and certainty and managing both medically and surgically. And that's an article we speak about other times, but again, hematuria, renal colic is so common. The worldwide prevalence and incidence of urolithiasis has been increasing, the number of new cases having nearly doubled in the U.S. over the past three decades. Acute urolithiasis is diagnosed in about 1% of yearly ambulatory care visits in the U.S. and uh, European ERs. So when you look at patients, tumors we're thinking of, 
But we got to think about the other things. If I don't find a tumor, then I'm looking for the causes, whether it's stone disease, whether it's infection. And again, remember that um, you can't have multifocal reasons. You could have a stone causing hematuria now and an incidental renal cell that's doing nothing or an incidental AML. Now, the lifetime risk for a urinary calculus disease is 12% for men, 6% for women. The risk factors are really the key. History, personal or family of stone disease, urinary tract anatomic abnormalities, obesity, patients with metabolic disorders. Also, stone disease is higher in warm climates and because people get dehydrated. So you also see lots of it on patients like the East Coast where you see many more stone problems in the summer than you see during the winter. Now, in terms of what information can we tell a referring doc, the presence or absence of stone and their location. Where are they or the multiple stones? The number of stones and the stone diameter, as well as the stone density, and the presence of additional findings. Is this is there polynephritis present? Is there a bleed present? Uh, this article by Eisner, not only does the study enable the detection of stones of all sizes, uh, but it allows you to find uh, urinary and extraurinary abnormalities that may contribute to the patient's flank pain. Now, it's also uh, very clear that most societies, the AUA and the ACR, recommend CT for the initial evaluation of the patient with flank pain, and in those cases recommend things with a non-contrast CT to look for any stone disease. Now, if you ask me the question, how good is CT for detecting stones? This is from the clinics a couple years ago. But you can see it goes through the different modalities, and CT is 98%, so it's not going to miss many stones. In theory, it can miss really tiny stones, but if you use thin section MIP, you're not going to miss them. Also, the fact is, if you um, evaluate stones uh, with coronals, it's just not going to happen. You're going to pick them all up. Now, let's say you have a stone. Can we predict, again, under what the uh, referring doc wants to know, is the stone going to pass? George Harrison said all things must pass, but he wasn't referring to stones. Spontaneous passage of 48% for proximal versus 75% for distal stones. And stone size, the larger the stone, no surprise, the uh, more likely it is not to pass. Things over 9 millimeters, some people say over 7 millimeters, are unlikely to pass. And obstruction could be proximal by the UPJ, it could be in the mid-ureters, which is above the level of the bifurcation, or it can be distally in the level of the distal ureters. Now, uh, when you look and you say, well, can I predict what stone won't pass? Well, people say anything above 6.5 or 7 millimeters will not pass. And if a stone has an attenuation over 1,100, it's more likely to require intervention. So those are two helpful things, stone size and stone density. Uh, this article by Lotan, our results show that larger stone size, higher density, and proximal location are significantly associated with the selection of interventional over conservative management for patients with acute colic, complaints of shivering, fever, and leukocytosis, also strongly correlate with the selection for interventional treatment. So big stones, you wait less time. Patients have significant infection, you need to go in and do something about it. Um, so it's really a balancing act how to manage these patients. Now I mentioned could stones be missed? You can miss anything, but typically, particularly if you're doing thin MIP, you're not going to miss anything. 
Occasionally, there's stones that are radiolucent due to uric acid, xanthine, or cysteine. That's indeed, indeed very rare. The 1% of stones that can be missed are pure matrix stones, and those are patients who have uh, uh, the protease inhibitor, indinavar present, and so it can be tricky. And so here's just a good example. Here's a nice case of a stone in the patient's left ureter. Sometimes you're not certain if it's in the ureter, near the ureter, you do a coronal reconstruction, voila. This is especially in looking at the pelvis when you see lots of flea bullets. Here you can see a nice example of the differential function of the kidney. The right kidney is a bit larger. The enhancement is not as good. The calyces are dilated. Here it is in the coronal view. The kidney is larger. Intensity of enhancement is less. Mild hydronephrosis. And you see it about the S1 level. You see a stone present on the right side. And here it is again very nicely shown. You see the stone. So this was an obstructing stone that eventually did pass. But you can see it's a large stone. But you see the caliectasis, very nice example. And again, here's delayed phase imaging. If you're not certain if a stone is in the ureter, you can do reconstructions, coronals, or sagittals can be very helpful. Most of the time, you can be very certain. Though I've seen cases when uh, a stone is just missed. Okay, so you want to be indeed very, very careful. Now, I mentioned I would just briefly talk about renal cell carcinoma because its presentation commonly is hematuria. And the fact is we know that most renal masses are picked up incidentally. As the size of these newly discovered masses decreases, the proportion of benign lesions will increase. So uh, we talk about detection and classification. Simply doing detection is great, but that's not good enough because if you took out every lesion you found and you didn't say what it was, you'd be operating on benign lesions. So we need to get more information. So here's just a simple case with uh, the patient's imaging, vascular tumor, left kidney, obviously clear cell renal cell carcinoma, which is growing toward the renal pelvis and then on 3D into the ureter and across the left ureter into the IVC, very nicely shown. And you can see on the excretory phase, the mass washes out, but you see the site and sign of the mass. You see its changes and again, um, it's a good example of that visualization. And of course, in this case and others, we'll use those images. The venous phase is particularly good for vascular involvement, be it the renal vein or IVC, very nicely shown in these two examples. Now, other things we talk about, as I mentioned, I'm not going to go through tumors much, and that was my shortest talk on tumors in history. But what else? Infection. Polynephritis, more common in women, usually E. coli. In most cases, patients can be treated without imaging. Occasionally, ultrasound is done. Um, you worry about complications, and this is true because the risk factors include diabetes, uh, elderly patients, immunocompromised hosts, or patients with stone disease, so that's important to remember. And in the category of this talk, which is microscopic hematuria, polynephritis can present with microscopic hematuria in addition to dysuria and everything else. Now, in renal infection and infarction, um, infection is very common, particularly in the ER setting. We think about polynephritis, we're always trying to exclude it. Key things we look for with contrast alterations in renal contour, parenchymal enhancement, contrast enhancement, decreased excretion of contrast, and perirenal and perinephric abnormalities. So you look at this case and you see high density left renal pelvis. Maybe the patient bled, that's a possibility. You go to the axials on, with contrast, 
Now look at that stranding in the perirenal space, the wedge shape in the patient's uh, um, kidneys. Uh, you know, you look at that and you say, what am I dealing with? Well, the other thing you could think about would be infarcts, because it can look very similar, but in this patient, young patient without any other risk factors, patchy enhancement, wedge shape, peripheral stranding, this is going to be acute polynephritis. Now, if you ask me what phase polyo shows best, I would say um, later phase. Uh, remember, all the stuff with striated nephrograms was in excretory phase imaging. So at times in arterial phase, you can miss some of the early patchy enhancement changes. Excretory phase is probably the best, and you can see it very nicely there. And here it is again, just uh, some stranding by the left kidney. The left kidney is larger. There it is non-contrary. See, the kidney is larger. The calyces are prominent. The pelvis is prominent. You give IV contrast, there's stranding around the left kidney. The enhancement is not as good as the uh, uh, right kidney. You see some adenopathy. Very nice example. Another case, here's another good one. You look at this case, you look at the mid-portion lateral aspect of the left kidney. Look at the low density lesion there. That's just a beautiful, beautiful example of focal inflammation. Now I do want to make the point that at times when you give a lecture, things are very easy. But I'm here to tell you that sometimes it's hard to distinguish focal infection from an infarct. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish, like in this case, focal infection from a renal cell carcinoma, papillary in type. And you can see in this example, again, low density mass. If I'm telling you this was papillary, you would say, yes, very nice papillary. And here it is again on the coronal view, and the patient has elevated prostate. But this is just a really good example and does really make it clear the challenges sometimes in making the right diagnosis. Now, I mentioned that sometimes polynephritis looks good on the arterial phase. Remember, later phase is better. Here's arterial, very hard to see anything. Uh, when you, in retrospect, you, as you go down a bit, you can see changes in the kidney, areas of decreased attenuation. Though you can see it shows it much better on the venous side at multiple locations. There's multiple patchy areas of decreased enhancement. Just a very, very nice example of acute polynephritis. Sometimes you'll see perirenal stranding, you'll see an abscess, you'll see inf infection. You can see papillary necrosis, which there's none of here. Now, when we talk about contrast, we also talk about phases. Now, we've made the point that non-contrast is great for stones. It's also great with contrast, getting a baseline density. But it's easy to miss small tumors. It's easy to miss polynephritis and nodular and any nodular processes at times, but vascular processes. So non-contrast scans have their challenges. So if you look at this transplant kidney, it's a little bit big, but transplants are usually big. The size hadn't changed, but when you give contrast, you realize you're dealing with a patient who has polynephritis. Very clear, striated nephrograms, really nicely seen axial or coronal images. Nothing very tricky here. It is on multiple different sequences but just a really nice example of the changes of perfusion in this patient. And again, here's some other images of the transplant kidney. There's some subtle patchy areas of decreased attenuation, which you only see on the excretory phase imaging, which are inflammatory in nature. And that is one of the points. It's very easy to miss these things, so indeed you need to be very careful. I thought I'd throw in this case, this patient was found down. And uh, you look at the kidneys, look at the striated nephrograms. You say, oh my God, what's going on here, pilo? It ends up this patient had been lost for a number of days and the patient was markedly dehydrated 
and this is acute renal failure due to dehydration, and, that, and those low densities of the tubules very nicely shown in this example. Now, we also talk about other things in the kidney. We talk about processes like renal abscesses. We talk about xanthogranulomas polynephritis. We talk about things like that, but I'll tell you what we'll do is let's just take a break. I know you're thirsty. I know you're thirsty because I'm thirsty, and we'll come back in a few minutes. Hold on. If you liked what you heard here today, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit our website, ctss.com, for lectures, quizzes, pearls, and more. Also, be sure to check out our apps that are available for free on the Apple Store. All links are in the description box below.